Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Rachel Plotnick. She's an assistant professor of cinema and media studies at Indiana University, Bloomington. Her work mainly focuses on human-machine relations, specifically the bits of technology that serve as interfaces between people and machines. Plotnik wants to know how these various switches, toggles, and surfaces came about, how our culture and society have influenced them, and how they have influenced us. Rachel Plotnik recently completed her first book called Power Button, A History of Pleasure, Panic, and the Politics of Pushing. And yes, it's all about buttons. From buttons that call servants or elevators to buttons that turn on lights, detonate explosives, or start world's fairs, Plotnik's book explores how the act of button pushing has become a kind of digital command and how buttons have changed the world. Rachel Plotnik joined me for a conversation in the WFIU studios. Rachel Plotnik, welcome to Profiles. Thank you for having me. Your research focuses on human-machine relations, specifically how interfaces affect technological and social aspects of daily life, or even more specifically, buttons, the kind that we push, not the kind that holds our shirts together, and also the history of buttons. What got you interested in this topic? I really went down this weird kind of winding road to get to that topic. It wasn't like I woke up one morning and said, oh, I'm going to go get a PhD in buttons. You know, that really (laughs) never happened. But I was doing some work at Northwestern University on my PhD, and I was in a very interdisciplinary program called Media Technology and Society. And in that program, we were encouraged to just really explore all these interactions between human beings and technologies and how they relate to one another. And I was in a class with Pablo Boskowski, who's this wonderful scholar, and we were thinking about different final projects. This was probably my first or second year in the program. And I started thinking about this idea of doing a project on remote control because I was very interested in this idea of what happens when we summon people or things into action from a distance. And that question really excited me because I realized that all around the world, all the time, we're trying to just spur things into action, especially when we can't see what they're doing. But the more I began thinking about remote controls, I saw these little buttons on them, and you had to actually push that button in order to make that remote control work. And that spurred a series of questions for me about, huh, why do we press these buttons? Where do they come from? Why are they everywhere? How do they become this very ubiquitous technology and this very ubiquitous interaction that we have all the time? And that led me to thinking about, hey, maybe I want to do a project about push buttons. Was there a first button? Was there the one that really did it? I agonized over that question so much. And as you mentioned, you know, clothing buttons preceded push buttons. I looked into belly buttons. My research ran the gamut in terms of thinking about all these different kinds of buttons. And I couldn't localize it to say, okay, this is the very first button that ever existed. So I kind of settled on thinking about a series of buttons that all came into being around the same time. And that's where we began to see buttons to actuate bells, to call a servant or get someone's attention by pushing uh, to ring a bell. Around that same time, also fire alarm bells, because obviously there have been lots of issues in the 19th century with fires and people losing their lives and buildings and things like that. So lots of emergency type buttons. But we could also think about things like musical instruments, valves, 
also keys on telegraphs, typewriter keys. It was sort of an explosion of pushing, you could say, around the late 19th century. But in your own research, was there a button that fired your imagination that made you think, you know, what's up with this? I got to get to the bottom of this. Yeah, that's a good question. I think for me, it was really around this idea of communication because I was studying a lot about how people communicate with one another. And I started thinking about that idea of calling a servant by button. And obviously, some people still do that in certain wealthy households to this day. But it seemed like that interesting dynamic that happened between button pusher and the person being pushed into action was really interesting. So thinking about that servant dynamic for me was really exciting and thinking about, huh, people used to always push buttons to sort of get one another's attention in that way. Even the name button from the book, it it took a little while for it to solidify as what everyone called these things. They had other names, too, when they were first coming onto the scene in the late 19th century. That's right. Yeah. The word button comes from bouton, which is the French way back in the 14th century. So that word had been around for a long time. But that word means to thrust or push forward like a pimple or a bud or something that just pushes out or extends outward. But really, there was no idea of you use a finger to push a button in that way. And people would also call buttons things like pushes. Sometimes you would even say that you pulled a button. I think there was a lot of confusion. You're right about this idea of what was a button at that moment. Well, wait a minute. I need to break this down because this implies that the thing that does hold our shirts together was named after a protrusion rather than these protruding switches that activate something being named after the things that hold our shirts together. Am I right about that? Yes. I think the clothing definitely preceded the pushing button. And you can think about that clothing button as literally sort of pushing or thrusting through the hole in order to attach your clothing. And buttons, the physical clothing kind were really popular in the 17th, 18th centuries, and even in the 19th centuries. So that was a very popular technology in its own right before we ever thought about, hey, we should push these things. So your book, Power Button, A History of Pleasure, Panic, and the Politics of Pushing. Now, in addition to the fact that it should probably win a Pulitzer for the most alliterative (laughs) subtitle, it mainly focuses on the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th, tracing the history of the button. I was wondering if you could tell us about something that I, for one, never really thought about before I read the book, which is that when it came to something as simple as pushing a button, there was a pretty steep learning curve. There was a surprising amount of training involved. Yeah, I was fascinated by that. Children would often learn how to construct their own buttons in school, and it was part of their education and learning about electricity, how you would put together a circuit. They would use materials like wood or inexpensive metal to just fasten and make their own buttons. There were signs where people would affix near buttons, push this, or give them sort of instructions about that. You saw it in lots of popular dialogue, both to adults and children, about what was the proper etiquette around how to push a button and when to push a button. And in many ways, I would say we still have that education in certain ways. We have to be instructed about where to push, when to push, how to push. But I would say that probably it was more formalized in the 19th century than maybe it is right now. What's an example of some instructions for button etiquette from back in the end of the 19th century? Some of the funny ones, especially in hotels, they had some buttons where you could push to ring to call a servant or a bellhop, someone to bring you water or a towel or things like that. So they'd often had a sign that would say push. But a lot of times people would write funny anecdotes in newspapers and things where they would say they got confused by that. They would push that button expecting water to actually come out of the button as though it were some kind of dispenser or fountain, realizing, oh, it doesn't actually work that way. This is just to call the person who brings me water. So I think there were lots of funny kinds of usability issues around buttons that people didn't exactly know what to expect. 
I was also intrigued to read about just how much writing and scholarship and study were generated by the early days of buttons, especially those that manipulated electrical systems. What are some of your favorite examples of the early study of how buttons were affecting people, this new fangled invention? Yeah, it was very interesting to see people especially reacting around this question of buttons and labor, because I think this was a moment, of course, around factories and bureaucracy and automation in many ways at the turn of the 20th century, that people were really anxious about what happens when we start delegating labor to machines. And the more we give over that labor to machines, the less there is for human beings to do. So a lot of the writing that I encountered was about this anxiety over what happens when we give push buttons to people and all of a sudden they don't have to perform a craft anymore. They don't have to have any skill anymore. They don't really need to know how to do anything at all except how to push a button. There were lots of dialogues happening there that talked about the de-skilling of the American labor force and thinking that we were all going to become this kind of ruinous, lazy, slothful society because we'd all just sit around pushing buttons. Especially, I think, in the case of the workplace, that's where a lot of discussion happened around what it meant to push a button. And that certainly has its echoes on down the ages since. But I think it's surprising just how early that was happening, how early it was making its way into popular culture. You'd see cartoons about it. But I was particularly struck by the headiness of some of the scholarship that is outlined in your book. People really devoted a lot of thought to this. Yeah. If you look at the Gilbreths or thinking about Frederick Winslow Taylor and some of the things that were happening around scientific engineering, people were studying how do we use our bodies in a way that's the most efficient? How do we sort of economize our effort and things like that? How quickly can we push a button and how can that then optimize the workforce in various ways? You had people studying this in laboratories and thinking about that in very scientific ways, along with you know people studying what happens if we push a button for the death penalty and try to take someone's life that way. And what do we need to worry about in terms of electrocution? So a lot was happening, I think you're right, in terms of this kind of scholarly approach to what was going to happen with buttons in society. You mention electrocution, and it seems like it's impossible to talk about the history of the button without talking about the history of electricity because they were growing in tandem for a long time at the end of the 19th century. What are some of those ways that those are linked, some of the anxieties about buttons being anxieties about electricity and vice versa? Yeah, that's a great question. I think in many ways, buttons came to be at a moment when there was a high degree of uncertainty and anxiety around electrification, and they provided a really neat kind of nice answer to this problem of people being afraid of electricity, especially adults. Many didn't want to interact with electricity, didn't want electricity in their homes. And so buttons became this kind of safe face that allowed people to interact with buttons in a very unintimidating way. I think that's why also people started to affix buttons to the walls and things like this where they could cover over the wires. Uh, All you saw really was the button itself. It became kind of the literal and figurative face of electricity. So people knew I can push that button. I don't have to be afraid that I'm going to be electrocuted. I don't need to know how the wires work behind the wall. All I have to do is just push this button and I can have this kind of safe, non-threatening interaction with that push button. When it comes to early electricity and early electrified systems, Were there some not-button interfaces that preceded the button? Because, not to get too technical here, uh, not like I can really because I'm no engineer, but (laughs) you're effectively just closing a circuit, right? So you think of uh, throwing a switch and connecting two bits that would close the circuit. It seems to me that a button wouldn't be someone's first attempt at an interface. 
I think that's right. Yeah. In the case of bells, one of the first things were bell pulls. And so you would pull this kind of big, heavy rope that had a kind of handle at the end of it. So there was a lot of cranking, pulling, those kinds of things. But often they required a lot of bodily effort. They were very heavy and demanding. And they would say only someone with great strength could actually pull this bell. So the button provided a very smooth kind of transition in that way to something that required a lot less effort. But also there were other switches, as you mentioned. There weren't only buttons on the scene. There were knife switches that we, you can't see me gesturing here, but there were (laughs) knife switches that you would pull down like you were pulling down a handle, uh, various kinds of levers, knobs that you could turn, lots of different things. So I think this was a really interesting moment alongside the history of electrification where people were trying to figure out what really is the best kind of switch to use. And it's interesting that buttons were the first light switches, uh, one push for on, one push for off at this moment in time at the turn of the 20th century. But then later in the 1900s, that's really when you saw the toggle switch that we lift up and down, which is what we use now. That didn't exist at first. People later decided, hey, this is a better way to turn the lights on and off. Yeah, that was weird to me in the book how the button didn't really take. It wasn't as popular a way to control light as that little toggle, that rocker switch. Well, one thing that you talk about in the book, which I imagine we can touch on in a lot of contexts, is the binary nature of things with a button. The fact that it's on or off and somehow the finality of a button deciding that the light is going to be off as opposed to, oh, the potential that the light can go back on again that you get from a switch. Maybe that had something to do with it. I'm just speculating. I have no idea. But I did think that was pretty interesting. Yeah, I think the binariness, if you will, of buttons was one of the main attraction points about them, but also why they made people very anxious. This idea, as you say, of finality, that either it's on or it's off or you're starting or you're stopping it, really didn't leave a lot of gray area in the middle. If you think about, okay, let's design a switch where we can have the lights dimmed or we can have 20 percent light as opposed to the light being on or off. Those are two very different kind of philosophical approaches to how light works. So it's interesting to think at that moment you could only have that either or, that on or off. And even the buttons themselves, one was white, one was black. So it was really a very literal interpretation of that binariness. And I think that was attractive to consumers in many ways because it was very clear. Okay, I know I push the white, I get light. I push the black, I get dark. But on the other hand, we could say that that's not the best design for every circumstance because sometimes we want those degrees in variation. And that's perhaps why buttons didn't work out to be the best solution in every case. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. I'm speaking with Rachel Plotnick, assistant professor of cinema and media studies at Indiana University and author of Power Button, a history of pleasure, panic, and the politics of pushing. When you're talking about buttons, it's not long before you start getting to division of labor and class and how that's all tied up with something as simple and unassuming as a button. But you talked about poles and bells. And so we could cast our minds back towards the end of the 19th century where you had people who could afford it living in relative luxury. And if they wanted their servants to come, you know, think Downton Abbey or whatever, they would pull on some rope, sometimes an ornate one, sometimes a simple one, and sometimes requiring great effort And along would come a servant bringing their tea or their breakfast or a valet or what have you. Such a leisurely activity, calling a servant if you have the means. And oh my goodness, I can't believe how much I'm put out 
to exert some muscular force to pull down this rope. And then this button comes along and people start thinking, well, this is really dangerous. You know, think of how little is required to exert this power over somebody else. It's pretty fascinating, really. And I think one of the things that happened around transitioning from those heavy bell pulls to buttons was that this was a moment when we were trying to make household help more discreet. So you might see the help, you know, moving to spaces away from where the housewife or master of the house might be located. And you'd put that button in a very unassuming place under your dining room table, next to your chair, in a position where people didn't have to really look at it. And so that made the help sort of appear almost magically out of nowhere. And I think that was a very attractive notion, this idea of just a gentle push and the servant sort of pops into being at a moment's notice. You can also make them go away when you don't want to see them anymore in a very discreet manner as well. And there certainly is obviously very much a classed nature to all of this and a power dynamic that was really interesting. And that's why I called the book Power Button, because it's not only about power and electrification, but also about those interactions that were happening between people of various statuses, various class, et cetera. Yeah, there's a passage in the book where you talk about the culture of servant visibility in, for example, India where the visibility of servants was considered a status symbol and how here in the States we have tended to prioritize more and more the invisible servant. So how else did the advent of the button change the lives of servants and servant culture? Yeah, it was pretty interesting. You know, I think other people have written about this question of invisible servants. And in general, we like to treat help as invisible. We like the people who do the dirty jobs in our lives not to be visible to us. And I think buttons fit in with that social cultural trend toward invisibility. But what was interesting about push buttons, I think, was that because it was electricity and a lot of these mechanisms didn't work all the time because they were new or the wires would get corroded or dusty or wet or things like that, there was a tendency for electricity to malfunction. And in this way, it allowed servants to sort of surreptitiously not do what people were asking them to do. So a servant might be summoned and not show up. And they could say, oh, well, the electricity didn't work. I never heard the button being pushed. And in that way, I think it acted as a kind of resistance. It allowed them to say, I don't really feel like coming just because you called me and I can blame it on the button rather than seeming like I'm being insubordinate. Did you really just say resistance when talking about electricity? <laughs> I told you I wasn't an engineer, but I did spot that. That was good. I'm an accidental punist, I no, think. That, that's very good. You mentioned that... We want servants to be invisible. And at the risk of going outside the scope of your research a little bit, why do you personally think that is? I think that it has a lot to do with class and the value that we assign different kinds of jobs in our society, and it has to do with power. I think the dirty jobs get pushed to the margins of our society in general, and maybe that has to do with certain guilt over the haves versus the have-nots. I think it has to do with these power dynamics that I talk about in the book, and it has to do with aesthetics and status. You know, people wanted the household to look like this well-functioning machine where everything just sort of happens effortlessly and magically. So if you can hide the help away, it's like the help just sort of comes into being when you need it. And it's very interesting that that metaphor of being an invisible servant very much carried on to thinking about electricity in a post-servant culture as we got later into the 20th century. Even electricity companies would talk about electricity being your genie or your invisible servant or uh, your magical helper and things like that. So that metaphor of even an electrical slave, people would say, where we've sort of sublimated or tamed electricity so it will do whatever we want it to do, but it ceases to exist when we don't need it. It's kind of that 
uh, on-demand sort of approach to thinking about electricity. Wow, that kind of gives me pause because <laughs> it seems like we succeeded in marginalizing electrons where we never could marginalize people enough. I think that's really the case, yeah. I, and I think that's one of the aims that we continue to see to this day with technology is to say, how can we sort of hide away all the messiness of our technological interactions and all the people behind those technologies so that we just get what we want when we want it? That's one of the appeals of Amazon, for example, is, oh, I feel like I want this product. I'll just click or push and then I get it. And it just magically appears at my door. But of course, there's a huge amount of human help that's required in order to make that box appear at your door. So this, I think, is part of something that's been continuing on for more than a century. One way that you have of framing this discussion about buttons, this exploration in your research in general and in your book, Power Button in particular, it's a concept that you explore repeatedly, a point of view that seems as prevalent really now as it was in the late 19th century, that you term digital command. What is digital command and how has it changed over the years? Or maybe I should ask how it hasn't changed. I do think there are many more similarities than differences, which was one of the surprising findings of my book. But I called it digital command for two reasons. One, I think we can think about our digital society as extending back to this 19th century, not in terms of ones and zeros or binary or computers in that typical sense that we think of digital, but digital in terms of the finger and pushing. And my argument is that I think back in the 19th century, we began to see a society that wanted to do everything by pushing a button and only wanted to lift that single finger. And that became a very powerful way of thinking about technological interactions. And then I pair that with the idea of command, because I think when people were pushing buttons, it wasn't necessarily a polite request. It wasn't a question. It was a command or a demand, right? It was saying, I want you to appear in front of me right now. I want the lights to turn on right now. So I pair those two concepts together to be able to talk about how we became this society that gives power and privilege to those who get to be those digital commanders, the people who get to sit behind their desks or sit at their computers or sit at their smartphones and get to push the buttons that then spur other people and technologies into action. So for me, it was a way to understand how our culture has shifted pretty significantly toward this kind of button digital culture. So what are some examples of that, of how the notion of digital command has affected society or affected culture? I think it gets back to that question of privilege, power, class again, because we get the people who have the luxury of not having to go and do the manual labor, right? The people who don't have to go in the fields or clean up trash or do that heavy kind of effort labor. We get the people who get to sit in white collar offices or who get to order things and make other people do their work. And I think buttons became one technology to make that increasingly possible. So we see this stratification that happens in society between the button pushers and then the people who have to be pushed into action. So there's pretty profound power dynamics there at play where I think it's a real luxury to be able to be someone who is a button pusher. And I mean that in all different senses of the term, from using the internet to the kinds of work that we do, to the interactions we have with our phones, those of us who do have access to those technologies. You mentioned Amazon a moment ago, and I guess a contemporary example of what you're talking about would be uh, if we are the button pushers when we're ordering something from Amazon, then the people who work at the fulfillment centers and the people who work for the postal service or for some other delivery service, they are the pushies. They're the ones that are pressed into service by us pressing a button. What are some examples from the late 19th and early 20th century that we, well, basically that we think 
has so little in common with that. And yet it really does have a lot in common with that. An example of the digital command that hasn't changed much. Yeah, that's a good question. I researched a lot of that in terms of workplaces. There was a lot of complaint about push-button managers at that time period uh, with workers saying, we don't like being told what to do by these people who just sit behind their desks all day just pushing a button, calling us to show up and respond to them, bring them whatever they want be at their beck and call all day long. And so a lot of people felt that that was this kind of new bureaucracy in society that didn't used to exist before, especially because you might have had employees and employers all working in the same space at the same time before. But just as servants get separated from housewives, the same thing happens where the office or the place of employment for those higher ups gets separated from the lower downs, right? And so then you begin to see that people are complaining about this kind of push button management where the manager just sits there all day sort of digitally commanding other people to do what they want. And I think that's quite similar to what we do today in terms of, you know, you pushing that button to order something from Amazon. Well, except I'm no manager at a large company, though. That's one of the things that I suppose has changed how accessible that level of power seems to be now. Yeah, I think that's probably true. In a way, we all act as these managers now, right? And I think we summon all of these technologies into action without ever even remotely being in the same place as those workers. And the whole idea behind the way these platforms like Amazon or social media are set up are really designed to give us that feeling of power. Like, oh, it only takes one touch of my finger and I get whatever I want whenever I want it. It's very much this kind of on-demand culture that we live in that I think is quite similar to how people began to think about on-demand demand, even if they weren't using those words way back in the 19th century. How has the notion of digital commands affected design? That's something that I thought was interesting, too. The ready availability of power seems to lead to innovations in how these buttons are designed. That's exactly right. And one of the things I talk about in terms of digital command was about ergonomics. And that's really where we begin to see this culture around dashboards, switchboards, sort of surrounding yourself with buttons all around you so that you never have to even extend your arm more than a few inches or you never have to reach. And I noticed a lot of language around that. Uh, No need to reach, no need to take the stairs, no need to walk. All you have to do is push a button that's right in your physical space. Even early automobiles, you know, they would embed buttons in the steering wheel so that you could just push that button while you were driving. People would embed buttons in their desks right next to their bedsides. The idea was sort of to always have a button at hand. And I think design became an important part of this digital command culture by saying we want buttons to always be physically close to where we are. So I guess that came to pass. Exactly. You know, if anything came out of my research, I was incredibly struck by just how prescient all of this was. You know, we really see the early formations of so many of the technologies and practices that we use today happening a century earlier. And it is important to note that not everyone had access to push buttons at that moment in time. They really were a tool for the wealthy and the powerful. And you could say the same thing today. But of course, I would say Most people have more access to buttons today than they did back then because, of course, only a small percentage of people even had electrification at that moment in time. So the stratification was even greater back then. But I do think we've seen many of the roots of our current contemporary society coming to pass at that earlier moment. The commonalities are pretty striking because when you think of how culture reacted to the question of removing ourselves from labor, when manual labor turns into this leisurely, almost lazy activity of just pushing a button. I had no idea that there was so much 
cultural reaction to it so early on. I remember that there was a drawing that you have in the book, a cartoon that depicts the fancy man of the future, I believe it was, kind of crudely drawn and strange and fantastic with a person with various tendrils coming into their head and some sort of button or rope attached to every finger and the keyboard at their toes that they're typing on. Kind of odd and grotesque, and I think of H.G. Wells or people like that who were that prescient. But there was a lot of prescience about this from all cultural walks. I thought that was pretty remarkable. Yeah, I uncovered a lot of really interesting kind of science fiction or prophecies or people thinking about what would the button presser of the future look like. And the image that you're referring to is by this artist, Walter Crane. And it's fascinating that he kind of imagines our extremities just being connected to buttons, that essentially they're embedded in our bodies and we're just sort of always attached to them all the time. Other people talked about that eventually we would have four fingers that would be overdeveloped. We'd have really big thumbs or four (laughs) fingers because they'd be evolved to push buttons, that that would be essentially the point of that finger, which I think is pretty funny, you know, just to think about a society with giant four fingers for pushing buttons. Okay, that didn't happen. (laughs) I don't think that our four fingers are particularly buff. Not not yet, but you know, who knows in another thousand years. That's true. It could take a lot of time. But there were really very interesting tales of a future society that would be a button-pushing society. Even E.M. Forster's The Machine Stops, this great story about his character being in a room all by herself, and she has access to any kind of button that she could ever want to draw her bath, to read books, to communicate with her friends. She only has buttons in the room, and that's how she carries out all of her activities. And what's most interesting about that story is that Forster describes this as a dystopian thing, that it's really bad, that she's no longer connected to the world in this kind of physical, material way, but instead she just pushes buttons all the time. And We could argue that that's what we all do now, right? That his prophecy came true, but he described it as a really negative thing. I wouldn't necessarily say that it's all negative or all positive, but it's fascinating that that's how he imagined this kind of society of the future. Do you think that maybe that has happened, but we've just become more adept at rationalizing isolation? It's possible. You know, I think a lot of scholars have studied this question of, are we more isolated? Does social media actually make us more alone? People like Sherry Turk will talk about, you know, that we're alone together, that we're not actually with each other, even when we're with each other through these technologies. But I would argue that's maybe overly generalizing. I think we have such a host of different kinds of interactions, both technological and non-technological. And my students often talk about how when they're with their friends, they like to put their phones away because they want to prioritize that interaction. And they know when it's kind of technology time versus non-technology time. So I would say that we have a wide range of different kinds of interactions as our society. We haven't necessarily become this dystopian world where all we do is sort of isolate ourselves from one another. But I think it's important to ruminate on what it means to live in a world where we do carry out so many interactions by button. Well, I think I have a challenge to some of your optimism with my next question. One thing that the growing use of buttons seemed to have a particularly powerful effect on was gender stereotypes. Boys were... Embryo Edisons, uh, encouraged to be tactile experimenters. They were conceived as perfectly suited to a world of push-button interfaces. Girls, on the other hand, were fragile, and the disproportionate power that buttons could wield were allowed to reinforce the sense that women were fragile or tiny. How has that changed or not changed in the intervening years? 
in many ways, buttons were described as a technology for women. They were a feminine technology. And as you alluded to, the idea was to say, okay, women are weak. They can't do anything that requires strength. Therefore, let's give them a push button and they'll be able to access all these technologies that previously they never could. That was a big argument with driving. Oh, women can't operate this big motor vehicle, but if we just give them a button to push, then they can operate the car. So I think there very much was this kind of gendering that happened. And on the other hand, with boys or men, pushing a button was kind of accessing a masculine virility, sort of a kind of stimulation. And there was always these sexual undertones, I think, behind this idea of pushing a button and gender as well. In the book, I talk about women's clitorises being discussed as electric buttons and the idea that you would push her button and it would sort of stimulate or activate her. And people talked about this as a really negative thing. And that was a reason for circumcision was to turn off that button. Well, and the very phrase to turn someone on came from this. Exactly. And so it's fascinating to think about the ways that early ideas about buttons very much fell along these very stratified gender lines. And we thought about boys' buttons being different from girls' buttons or women's buttons and these kinds of things. And as far as do we still see that today, I would argue that in some cases we still think about high-tech fields as being masculine and those kind of stereotypes persist. It's much harder for women to break into STEM fields and things like this. So if we think about high-tech culture as being a button-pushing culture, we could say, okay, it is more difficult for women to access that culture. But in general, I think maybe the gendering is not as overt as it used to be. Rachel Plotnick, Assistant Professor of Cinema and Media Studies in the Media School at Indiana University. She's also the author of Power Button, A History of Pleasure, Panic, and the Politics of Pushing. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. So let's take the history of buttons down the timeline a little bit further. What were things like after World War II and into the 1950s? In your book, you call the 50s the push-button era. Yeah, it was an interesting choice for me to say, okay, let's not study the 1950s. Let's go back to the 19th century because people who have studied post-World War II, Cold War era would definitely call that the push-button era because that's where you see all of this suburbanization happening, people moving out to the suburbs, all of these technologies like garage door openers and blenders and things designed to make the housewife supposedly have an easier life, whether or not that actually bore out to be true. So you could see buttons popping up on everything in the 1950s. And I wanted to look at this earlier moment in time because I think that was kind of this interesting moment of negotiation where people were first confronting this interface and trying to figure out what that society would look like, even though most people didn't have buttons at that moment. But when we jump forward to the 1950s, we see things kind of sedimenting in terms of people assuming that buttons are this really high-tech technology. And if we think about what was happening with the Cold War in terms of anxiety about the nuclear button, the quote-unquote big red button, people being very afraid that the world could be blown up at a moment's notice by either Russia or the United States, you also see this turn happening in households where people are thinking about, we want this kind of space-age high-tech technology in our homes. So you do see, to use another pun, a kind of explosion of buttons happening during that particular moment. You mentioned that you were deliberately not choosing the 50s as the focus of your book. But as you researched more the trepidatious beginnings of buttons compared to Cold War anxiety, 
Did you notice any other commonalities? Absolutely. You know, people were talking about push-button warfare even in the 1890s, which was fascinating to me, considering that really didn't exist as a concept yet. It was tremendous to see people imagining what would the world look like if we could carry out war by button. And I think that connected to this broader anxiety about what if we do everything by button and what does that mean? So there was a lot of talk about warfare by button as being less civilized because people wouldn't be using their hands anymore. People wouldn't be getting dirty and sort of taking lives in a way that had meaning if they could just sit back and push a button to carry out that same task. So there was a pretty negative impression of push-button warfare at that time period. And I think we see that anxiety then stemming definitely all the way into the Cold War. You know, I've done a lot of research on popular attitudes toward push-button warfare in the 1950s and 60s, and you see a continued anxiety about what does it mean to carry out war from a distance? Again, getting back to that idea of remote control, that the person isn't physically there, but they can trigger this absolutely catastrophic event to take place from a distance. And we can see that conversation happening even in the present moment around drones and things about remote control warfare. And, you know, a lot of people talk about what it means to sit in a room where you don't actually see the people whose lives you're taking or a single push can take dozens, hundreds, thousands of lives. It's a very contemporary question as well. So I would argue that that's a question that's been percolating for more than 100 years. And it seems to also have to do with this thing that's been around since the beginning of Buttons, which is the large power disparity. I'm struck by another image you had in the book of the young girl who blew up the mine about a thousand feet away. Yeah, I think that gets back to your question about gender, but also this question of power and accessing power through push buttons. Uh, This was something, the example you used was printed in the newspaper where it shows a girl pushing a button to explode a mine using dynamite by pushing a button. And there were lots of cases like this where young girls, even babies, were sort of portrayed as pushing buttons to demonstrate this disparity between the femininity, the frailty, and then the power of electricity and the button. And so when you put those two concepts together, you saw, oh, my goodness, look at what we can carry out just by pushing this button. Look how humanity has harnessed this technology. I think we continue to think about that. You know, here we have this weak finger, this impotent finger, or uh, this person who doesn't have a lot of power. But by virtue of having that button under their finger, all of a sudden they become incredibly powerful. You have some other examples of this from your book. I was wondering if you could walk us through them because some of them are uh, almost charmingly awkward, where the various United States presidents, as they get introduced to the remote power of a button, starting, I believe, with telegraph switches. Yeah, this was some of the earliest research that I did. I studied presidents using buttons to actuate or start world's fairs. And the idea behind this was that they would initially send a telegraph signal. They weren't really pushing a button that did anything, but when they pushed the telegraph key, it would then send a signal that would tell someone to lower flags or start a fountain or something else that would initiate the fair to begin. And eventually it became an electrical button that they could push to do this kind of remote control, the same kind of actuating mechanism. But you see, again, that question of virility, I think, where you have this powerful masculine figure and all he has to do is push a button and he gets all of these technologies to spur into action. You know, the way we might think of a ribbon cutting ceremony, but even more powerful because the people couldn't usually see the president pushing this button. They would just all of a sudden see these magical fountains start to spurt and see these flags all of a sudden waving. So again, it was that sort of invisible labor that then triggers this magical act to happen. And this happened for many, many years that there would be these major ceremonies around presidents pushing buttons. 
And then people would report on them in the newspaper and talk about, oh, when President Roosevelt pushed the button or when President Cleveland pushed the button. And it was just really fascinating to see that kind of discussion happening around it. It's also fascinating that it worked. Not the buttons themselves, I mean. It's just I can't figure out whether that's more effective at showing how much power the president has or how much power they don't have, how much power is vested in the button itself and that theater, the invisible forces that you mentioned that actually will start the fountains. Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I remember one case where it didn't successfully work. I think the president was running late or something like that. And people were waiting for all of this to happen and it didn't actually happen on time. And as you use the word theater, you know, when you see that spectacle fall away or you see the magic fall away, that reveals the mechanism behind it. And you see that that failure is possible. So in order for them to summon that power, all of this kind of spectacle and gesture had to work successfully together in order to make the theater possible. Okay, so we're moving further and further away from the time period you discuss in your book. But 1968, Douglas Engelbart, a bit of a game changer for buttons. Engelbart created the prototype of the mouse. Here we have an example of the literal button kind of starting to become a figurative button because it's being triggered on a graphical user interface, a GUI or a GUI. And some designers even in the 1990s were calling for ending the tyranny of the button. So can you walk us through this change as we go from the literal button of ages past to some of the figurative buttons that surround us all the time now? Yeah, I think it's really interesting to see the way these metaphors, you know, of the physical button then get moved into these more digital or graphical user interface versions of buttons. Of course, that mouse that you mentioned was incredibly important. There were lots of experiments with other kinds of interfaces at this time period, and Engelbart did lots of research of his own to figure out what would be the best way to interact with a computer screen. So people tried light pens, and those were popular for a little while. Later in the 80s, we see early touchscreens and things like that. But buttons were that interface that were so familiar and so comforting because people had been pushing buttons for such a long time. In the late 1960s, you get touch-tone telephones, for example. So everyone knows how to push a button. You know, it's just that very familiar technology. And you mentioned that ending the tyranny of the button. I think by the time you get to the 90s and you see early web design, all people would do would put giant buttons on everything, right? We call that the skeuomorph, which is the metaphor for design when we take things from the past and we incorporate them into the present. That's why we see trash cans or recycling cans on our desktops to throw out things or yellow file folders to put things in. Those are all metaphors that we use to make our graphical user interfaces familiar to us because they're things that we do in the physical world. And I think buttons fit into that broader picture where people knew what they were, so it made sense to put them into that design. But on the other hand, I think there was oversaturation. People were thinking, is there another way to do this that doesn't involve just sort of plastering buttons everywhere? But of course, we're approaching that next generation that may be entirely unfamiliar with that technology. And then you've reached that point where it no longer references the physical thing anymore. It just comes to be a referent for that digital thing because people aren't familiar with the interface anymore. And, you know, of course, we see our designs in many ways moving away from buttons toward these very streamlined, very clean sort of designs. People talk about an era in which we may not have buttons anymore, right? And that's kind of an interesting open question. And yet we're trying to get back there in other ways, it seems, because if you think of something like a touchscreen on a tablet, they introduced not long ago this notion of haptics, Mm -hmm. as a way of making something that's not a button feel more like a button. 
Yeah, it's fascinating. You know, I think in many ways we got really heady excited about this idea of touchscreens and we went ahead and put touchscreens on everything. And people decided that that was a far superior way to interact with all our technologies. I think there's a kind of romanticism embedded in the idea of the touchscreen that you're getting closer to the technology, that it's more authentic in some ways, that you're touching the data, whereas the button is more distance in some ways. On the other hand, we're beginning to recognize that touchscreens aren't a natural, quote unquote, technology. And in fact, sometimes they're not the best way of doing things. And the example that I often use is driving. You know, if you have to look at that touchscreen while you're driving, it can be really unsafe. And a lot of times you need something physical that you can just reach out and touch. And so you see a lot of car interfaces moving back toward these more physical buttons, I think, because they recognize that touchscreens aren't always the best way to do things. There's a famous scholar, Donald Norman, who talks about this. He talks about the idea of there being no such thing as a natural interface. And we like to think that certain interfaces are just natural, that, oh, we intuitively know how to use them, that our bodies were built for certain interfaces. But I agree with him that there is no such thing as a natural interface because we have to attune and train our bodies and learn how to do things with all of these interfaces. Just like we talked about the education around buttons, it's the same thing with touchscreens or anything else. We have to be trained in one way or another to know how to properly use them. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. Our guest is Rachel Plotnick, Assistant Professor of Cinema and Media Studies at Indiana University and author of the book Power Button. Tell me some more about recent examples of buttons and how they affect or are affected by society. I think of things like the voice Mm-hmm. or Staples Easy Button, or an April Fool's Challenge on Reddit. Could you talk about those a little bit? There are so many interesting examples of contemporary buttons and the way they mediate our social interactions. The Reddit example was really interesting because it was an April Fool's Day joke, and the idea behind it was to put this big red button on their site and then see who would push it or click it and who wouldn't. And they didn't tell anyone what was going to happen when they pushed it. They didn't tell them how long the button was going to be there. And it became this kind of fascinating social experiment to see what would people do with this button. People started forming teams to try to push it as quick as they could. Some people became the button abstainers, and they refused to push it, and a whole little mini society evolved around those people who abstained from pushing the button. And I think it was this great microcosm of thinking about the ways that we continue to wonder what is the place of buttons in our society. And the fact that it was a big red button, I think, is extremely telling because we're caught between pleasure and panic when we think about what buttons do and what they mean to us in our society. On the one hand, we want to push them. There's this kind of innate psychology that says, oh, I see a button. I want to push it. You know, my daughter has a book that's called Do Not Push the Button. And of course, it's the most entertaining thing ever when she sees it that you just push it over and over and over again because it plays on that psychology. But on the other hand, we're really afraid of many buttons because of that big red nuclear button or thinking about panic buttons or just not knowing what a button is going to do. So I think that Reddit example perfectly played on this psychology of both pleasure and panic, this danger and desire, and what happens if you push the button or you don't push it. So what ended up happening with the Reddit button? 
you know, it didn't last for that long. I mean, they eventually said it was an April Fool's joke. There's a whole archive on Reddit where you can go back and look at all the interactions that happened around it. It was just meant to be a joke, but I think they had no idea how popular it was going to become. People were writing tons of news articles about it and blogs just sort of talking about what did this mean about society and people's fascination with this button. And I would say that we've always had that kind of fascination. It played on this very long-held fixation that we have on what buttons do and what they don't do. And so if you think of other examples like The Voice or things like that in our society now, you know, again, it gets back to that kind of power and privilege. Who gets to push? Of course, it's the very wealthy musician Sitting in a really comfy throne-like chair. Exactly, with that big button. And whether they push the button or they don't, right, they hold the person's fate in their hand. They get to decide by that push of the button. It's a perfect power dynamic where the person is vulnerable standing on the stage, and they're either going to make it or not make it. And this person gets to decide, will they push or not push? Different kinds of values get baked into technologies that we don't always know about. And a lot of times the power dynamics are not always up to us because we're not given the choice to decide how the button works or we don't know how the button works. People always ask me about elevator buttons and, oh, if I press the door close button, does it really work? Or if I press the crosswalk button, does it really make the cross come more quickly? And that's because I think buttons are designed in a way to obscure a lot of information. They don't tell us what they do most of the time. We don't understand how they work or what happens behind them. And that's their potency. That's what makes them attractive and magical. But I think it's also what disadvantages us as users in certain ways is because we can't see behind them. We don't understand the logic that's programmed to make them work a particular way. Well, since we don't understand that, I'm wondering what you think as you look back from the very earliest days of the buttons in the late 19th, early 20th centuries up through the present day as the types of interfaces have transformed into other ones that are more complicated and I guess more unknowable, unless you have the engineering degree. I'm wondering what you think it's done and is doing to our expectations, culturally, as consumers, as voting members of a democracy. How are these interfaces and how they're changing affecting our expectations? It's a complicated question. On the one hand, we could say sometimes buttons are designed in such a way as to prohibit our agency as users. You know, I think, for example, about the buttons that we encounter on user agreements when we're trying to decide if we're going to use a new website. And they say, click here, yes or no, do you agree to the terms? That you haven't read. Exactly. That's a perfect example of the binary button that's designed to say, yes, I agree, or no, I don't agree. But what if I only kind of agree? What if I agree to certain parts of those terms and conditions, but not others? But I'm not given the choice because of those binary buttons and the way they limit or constrain my choices. I think that's an area in society where we have a long way to go. Because when we're not given that kind of transparency, when we don't understand what's happening behind those buttons, that's problematic. In the same way that more and more of our technologies are designed so that we can't repair them ourselves, right? If your car breaks down, it's a computer. If you don't know how to repair that computer, you're not repairing that car. Or your laptop which is designed by Apple, which you can't even open yourself anymore. People talk about things like the right to repair and that we're in a culture where, you know, we've become so focused on just push the button or don't push the button. We don't get access to everything that's behind it. And I think increasingly we've moved toward technologies that limit our access in various ways. And so I would say that's probably one of the most problematic aspects about buttons is the way they foreclose our rights as users to fully engage with the technology. It seems like that's actually necessary. Like it doesn't work unless we're taken out of the equation in terms of our agency. 
It's a complicated thing because, you know, if we go back again to the 19th century with the early Kodak amateur camera, you had Kodak designing a camera for the first time where all the person had to do was push the button and it takes a picture and then Kodak would develop the film for you. You didn't need to understand how the camera worked. You didn't have to be a professional photographer. And that was extremely enticing. And it opened up photography to a whole range of people who obviously never would have had access without it. And of course, it made professional photographers furious because they didn't want their craft being opened up to this whole rank of amateurs. And so we could say for consumer products, it's a wonderful thing that we can access all these technologies without knowing how they work. That could be a really democratic thing. But on the other hand, I think when these companies begin to have so much power over how we interact with the technologies and what rights and privileges we have, that to me gets to be more problematic because we may not understand how everything works, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't have some kind of voice in the dynamic between corporations and ourselves. And I think a lot of times, especially interfaces, are designed trying to look sexy, trying to look cool, trying to be the next big thing, rather than sort of prioritizing that user agency and user's choices. So it really requires that dialogue, I think, between designers, content creators, and users to really all work together. We've been talking about your book, Power Button, The History of Pleasure, Panic, and the Politics of Pushing, which has a lot about the past in it and a lot of repercussions in the present. I have two questions about what's next. The first one, though, is what's next specifically for you. Some of the projects you're working on now have to do literally with what happens when the human-machine interface gets really messy. Yeah, I've become sort of transfixed with this idea of how we engage with our interfaces, our devices, and how those devices engage with us, just in terms of kind of the daily muck and mess, Um, thinking about smudges of our fingers on screens, when we spill liquid on our devices, when we drop them, um, dust and dirt and all these questions. For me, I've always been fascinated by bodies and how bodies interact with technologies, and that's a big part of my work on buttons. And this seems like a great next step in terms of thinking about my work because it involves that really embodied kind of interaction that we have with technologies. And from my own personal perspective, I notice how much on a daily basis I'm just trying to manage that mess, right, and sort of keep my device, quote unquote, alive. And all of the remediation and steps I have to go through to ensure that I'm not destroying my devices just by living and coexisting with them. And I think the more mobile they become, the more they are integrated into our routines, you know, eating at your desk, taking your phone in the bathroom, reading in bed, all of these things. So we have to think more and more about uh, the ways that we engage in this very tactile, material, embodied sort of way with our devices, and that's what I'm interested in. Is it inevitable that when it comes to interfaces with technology, they're always going to be ruined by our humanness? It's an interesting question, and it seems that way. And I got really interested in the case of Uh, there's another pun for you, smartphone cases, because we do all this protection. We're always trying to sort of protect our devices from ourselves. And that's fascinating to me just in terms of thinking about waterproofing and shockproofing and dust and all these things, you know, that we have to augment our devices in various ways in order to be able to exist in the world with us. And we are a liability for our devices, which I think is just pretty fascinating. And I'm assuming that you didn't get a research grant paid for by the makers of antibacterial hand sanitizers. (laughs) I'm going to have to look into that. That would be nice. So my other question about the future. Some of the courses that you have taught have titles like Imagining the Future of Technology and Technology, Fantasies and Fears. You've dedicated a lot of work to where we've been and to where we are now with technology. So where do you think we're going with push-button culture. 
Have things already gone past some precipice? Uh, Where do you think we should go? Those are really interesting and tough questions. You know, one of the things that got me initially started in thinking about buttons was that I began to see a lot of language in the news about the death of the button, quote unquote, and that we were moving out of this push button era. We were moving on to the next thing. And in many ways, I would say that has occurred since I began my research, you know, six or seven years ago. We see that now people use Alexa and they use Siri and they talk to their devices, maybe more so than they push buttons on their devices. And a lot of our smartphone makers are quick to say, oh, this next generation of phone won't have a single physical button on it. We have gone beyond the button era in certain regards. But by the same token, I would say that I believe we'll come to have a lot of different interfaces that will coexist. And I don't think the series and Alexas of the world are always the best way of doing anything either. This whole idea of our technologies listening to us, I think, has tremendous privacy implications. It's very much akin to thinking about that idea of calling the servant. But yeah, we're calling our servants again. Uh, we've moved we, we, back. We came all the way back to the middle of the 19th century. Exactly. In some ways, we're sort of going pre-button, which is pretty fascinating. And I think there's still a desire for, you know, gesture technologies. Oh, can I just wave my hand in the air and make my technology do something? And I think we'll see more of that, more of voice, more of these, quote unquote, more organic or natural interface interactions, which, again, I don't think are actually natural. But I think we want to think about technology further blending into our environment, and we can just use our bodies to interact with it however we want. But I would argue that there's still a real important place for push buttons in our environment. I think it's all about how push buttons get deployed and used, which is really what I would say about any interface. I think interfaces can be deployed in ways that are ethical and usable and responsible and desirable, or they can be used in ways that don't privilege user agency, that are problematic, that sort of hide and obscure the important aspects behind them. So in many ways to me, it's not so much which interface we end up using, but what are the values and ethics that get built into that particular interface that I would really like to see us moving in an ethical direction. Rachel Plotnick, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It was great to be here. Thank you. Rachel Plotnick, Assistant Professor of Cinema and Media Studies in the Media School at Indiana University Bloomington and author of Power Button, a history of pleasure, panic, and the politics of pushing. I'm Aaron Kane. Thanks for listening. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash, The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.